0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The Mayo Clinic Proceedings recently updated their guidelines for the treatment of restless leg syndrome. The AASM is also in the process of updating its guidelines. We had a request to do an episode on the treatment of RLS with a specific request to start with the basics. Since this was a request, we didn't want to wait for the updated AASM guidelines, although we do plan to discuss those once they've been released. Instead, we reached out to Dr. Rachel Salas to help us. Along with her colleague, Dr. Sarah Benjamin, we will review treatment options that align with the new Mayo Clinic recommendations. Dr. Salas is a professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins Center for Sleep and Wellness. She has research and clinical expertise in restless leg syndrome, and is often asked to provide a second or third opinion on refractory RLS. Dr. Sarah Benjamin is the medical director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Sleep and Wellness. She came to academia after being part of a comprehensive community neurology practice for eight and a half years. Thank you both for joining us today.
1: It's so great to be here. Thank you so much.
0: So let's start with the basics. Sarah, why do we get Restless Legs? Some people are more predisposed to restless
2: leg syndrome than other people, and it most likely has to do with the availability of iron in the central nervous system. It could be due to a lack of iron in the systemic body, and then therefore, by default, there is not enough iron in the central nervous system, and in other cases, there's probably a problem with transporting iron to the central nervous system.
0: So Sarah, you've worked in the community and in academia. Um, Do you have a specific approach in how you ask people uh, about restless legs? Uh,
2: Yes, you do have to define it, uh, especially because People, I was—I would say historically too—have been told that they had restless leg based on a sleep study, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you see a lot of that. It's like, oh, I have restless leg. I found out on my sleep study, mm-hmm. and so you have to dispel that—that that that's not restless leg. So what we're talking about is a pattern of discomfort in the legs. It happens more later in the day when the patient's at rest, and that movement helps. So. And and I'll ask the patients, well, what do you do when you have this feeling? Do you feel like you want to get up and walk, you know, or how do you handle it? If they say that they just let it pass, usually that's not restless leg. The patients really do usually need to get up and move.
1: And I'll add to that. So like, you know, with the criteria before, even if they meet all of those criteria and technically they have restless leg syndrome, again, when we start thinking about treatment, they have to have other consequence, like they have to have some daytime or sleep disruption for us to really consider even talking about treatment strategies, right? Because there are patients that just meet the criteria, but it's not a problem for them, right? Again, once or twice a week or even maybe might might not even have meet the criteria, but it's they may say like, yeah, I have it a few times a a week, but it's not a problem for me. I mean, I usually can get to bed.
2: Or people say, you know, I just tend to ride my exercise bike before Mm -hmm. bed and then after that it settles down. That's fine, right? You can Mm -hmm. adapt.
0: We had kind of talked about how the guidelines have changed recently. Rachel, can you outline the changes for us?
1: Yeah, um, the biggest change uh, is the 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 ordering of the medication of choice that we use that's first line. So for a long time, dopamine agonists have been the number one treatment option for patients with RLS, but now um, the recommendation is to you start with the alpha two delta calcium channel ligands. Um, And the reasons for that are really kind of multifactorial. One of them is really uh, the side effect profile is really the highlight. So less of a chance of augmentation or really not, not really any augmentation with these type of medications. Um, They have a better side effect profile. So some of the, 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 the compulsive, uh, obsessive behaviors that we might see in in patients with low-dose dopamine agonists are not there. And so overall, it just has a better side effect profile.
0: So do you see that a lot, a lot of that impulsivity with the dopamine agonists?
1: You know, it's very interesting. I would say that we do it's there a lot of times we don't ask about it so um, I'll give you an example like I've had patients that many of our patients that, that come to our center um, are uh, aug- you know have augmentation so they ban all dopamine agonists many of many times at higher doses and so um, the treatment strategy often obviously involves weaning them off the dopamine agonists and switching them onto to maybe the alpha 2 delta calcium channel ligands um, and. When they come off and I'm seeing them in follow-up, a lot of times I'll ask them, you know, is anything change in your behaviors? And they'll ask like, well, what do you mean? And I'll say, do you have like, did you have a hobby that maybe you're not picking up anymore? And most of the time when you ask, it's there. It's subtle, right? Huh. It's not like our patients that have Parkinson's or are a lot higher doses. But I would say most of the time there's stuff there.
0: Huh. So a hobby. I've never asked about a hobby
1: yeah, it kind of presents itself like as a hobby, like it's just something that they pick up and the family and even the patient kind of say, oh, it's just something I like doing now. It becomes a hobby and then you wean them off the dopamine uh, agonist and you can kind of have them reflect back and they'll say, like, I've had patients that do like woodworking, right? And they were really in- interested even selling things on the Internet or in markets, huh. Um had other people like go see Broadway shows in New York, that compulsion to see a show in New York, even though the same shows might be like closer to home or in their hometown. And then once you get them off, that compulsion is not there. So again, not not anything dramatic where it's causing huh. negative consequences, but yeah. Uh-huh. I've had,
2: yeah, I've had two patients that I can think of that had very dramatic um, problems with impulsivity okay. that really, like made them almost bankrupt, almost destroyed their life.
0: Oh my gosh, what did they do?
2: Compulsive gambling, <gasps> yeah, right to the point. Um, compulsive collecting, like comic books, to the you know spending lots and lots of money, getting these rare comic books. And one patient also um, was was going to prostitutes.
0: Oh my gosh! And
2: then that behavior stopped when he came off the medication.
0: Wow. Okay. I need to change how I, how I ask that question, I suppose.
1: <laughs> okay. So yeah, so, I would say that's probably, I don't know, Sarah, where these patients were like kind of high doses. Like if I think the lower doses, like it's probably, cause that sounds like more of the Parkinson type patients. So I wonder uh, if they were on like either longer or higher doses than we mm-hmm. typically use for our I just,
2: rest. I just think these were extreme situations. I don't yeah. think, that,
0: you know. Okay. So, so what should we, what do we start with now? Like, is there a certain order that we should do this in? for like restless leg syndrome, like what is the first, what's the first line medication now?
1: So the first line medication, and I agree with this new practice parameters that are, you know, that, you know, we had a group of uh, well-known experts in in RLS and, you know, using the alpha two delta calcium channel ligands is really the number one treatment strategy now.
0: And so which one do you start with?
1: Well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, you have things <laughs> like uh, you got to think about who the patient is, right? So, again, most of our patients with RLS, especially, you know, the more complex, maybe, uh, you know, older, they may have other medical disorders, other symptoms, um, spe- specifically neurological dis- uh, symptoms. So, like, you got to be careful um, with, the, you know, the, the alpha-2-delta calcium channel ligands because, you know, dizziness, um, mm-hmm. sleepiness um, maybe even some confusion. So you, and then weight gain, right? So water retention is another thing. So, um, I kind of see like the, what's, what, what's on the table for that particular patient and if weight is an issue. I might, you know, maybe start first with pregabalin, right? Mm. Um, and then, you know, I think what's important is counseling the patient that this isn't a medication that you take, like as soon as you take it, your RLS is like completely, you know, improved, right? Mm -hmm. It takes time to kind of get up to the dose that you need to. So I would say that most of the time we're working over a few weeks to really get the patient to an adequate dose. Um, so pregabalin, you know, obviously that one's FDA approved for the use of, of, um, restless leg syndrome. Um, Gabapentin and the longer acting Gabapentin um, are are definitely viable choices. You just got to be careful on the side effect profile for all three of these, you know, particularly that dizziness. And often I use these medications and dose them at night, um, which that helps tremendously. I think not only to treat their symptoms of RLS, but to minimize the side effect profile.
0: So when you start let's say gabapentin do you start really low like 100 or do you just go right to the like 600
1: so I, I tend to always, my, my rule of thumb is really to try to start as low as I can. Um, with that being said, unless the patient says, like, I have, you know, I'm very sensitive to medications or I tried this medication in the past and had dizziness, then those type of patients or they're on other medic a lot of other medications that I am worried, I may start them as low as 100. But typically, I start people on on 300 and kind of coerce it over a week or two, and then kind of move on up. i mean, most of my patients for RLS, um, if they're on, if we're talking about gabapentin usually are on doses, um, you know, 1800, you know, we used to have higher doses, 27, even at one time, 3600. And obviously we gotta be very careful with renal function and, and, and other potential side effects. But I would say for the most part, most patients with RLS that are on gabapentin are probably around 1800, 2700, and maybe even as low as 1200 for the most part.
0: Okay, wow, that's way, hard. that's way higher than I thought. Uh-huh. Huh.
2: Yeah. I mean, almost likely give patients, if I'm going to start on gabapentin, start off with a 600 milligram tab, tell them cut it in half for mm. the first few nights. You know, but if it's tolerated and not effective, just go to that 600 pretty quickly.
0: Okay. Um, what about the people who are on hemodialysis, right? Because we know that restless leg syndrome is associated with morbidity and mortality in that population.
2: Often we have to... Um, dose uh, the alpha two delta medication to be given differently on the days of dialysis. It'll be dialyzed off. So with, and they may need additional medication to sit in the chair and have mm-hmm. dialysis. So it's something to be very aware of and, and kind of customize your treatment for their dialysis schedule and dose it appropriately.
0: So how do you dose it appropriately after dialysis?
2: Yeah. So, so it does need to be, um, given again after dialysis. And so there'll be a dose for the non-dialysis days and the day of dialysis, a dose to be given after dialysis. And I think I think if you look up gabapentin, it actually tells you a little bit about how, you know, like the renal dosing. I think that it's, sometimes it's laid out mm.
0: to look at that. Yeah, that's helpful. So what about the pregabalin? How do you dose that?
1: So the pregabalin for me, I kind of do the same thing, right? So like if if they have a lot of other medical concerns, you know, there is maybe a concern of weight gain because maybe we can't try other medications. So um, I may start as low as 75 uh, milligrams and quickly titrate up. Um, if I can, uh, most of the typical patients that don't really have a lot of medical issues or I'm not that concerned, I, I definitely will start at 150, have them do that for about a week or two, kind of have them send me a, a, a message on uh, the electronic medical record. Let me know about, you know, any side effects or anything like that. And after that, I increase them to 300 uh, nightly. And most of the patients with RLS are about 300, 350 for the most part on average huh. at night.
0: Do you see a lot of water retention with that?
1: For me, with pregabalin, it's not as common as, like, for instance, gabapentin. But mm. you do see it, so you got to tell the patient about it. Um, yeah. So, but I, I don't see it as often uh, with the GABA with the as compared to gabapentin, for example.
0: Is that your experience too, Sarah?
2: Um, it hasn't been a big issue. There's always some patients, and I feel like. It's not always dose-dependent. I mean, I remember starting someone with gabapentin. One patient, that for some reason, her arm swelled instead of her legs. But, you know, just one of those things. Sometimes it just happens.
0: Because I think sometimes when you're talking about side effects, right, like like the pregabalin has that heart failure sort of um, concern. And so that one is the one that patients really, you know, because they Google (laughs) and we talk about it, and that's the one that makes them a little bit more – concerned about taking that medication is that something you guys see too
1: yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's always a concern. We talk to your patients, especially if they have the the risk for that, mm-hmm. um, you know. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, we're a little there's a little bit of bias, I think, for our center because typically we definitely tend to see the more complex presentations of RLS with augmentation. Often, our patients have tried many of the medications. So for us, it's a serious conversation of retrying medications that the patients sometimes are not necessarily interested, right? Because they tried Mm -hmm. in the past and it didn't quote unquote work. Um, But once we get to an agreement on what medication of choice we're going to talk, we do talk to them about the side effect profile. We put it in their electronic medical records so they could see the full report. Um, But honestly, I I haven't had major um, issues or haven't seen that as a major side effect because I think we we try to um, select the medication up front and have Mm -hmm. those conversations first.
0: So I heard you say something about retrying a medication. Do you re-challenge with like a dopamine agonist?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think at this point, I really try to see, you know, try to tell the patient that it's really the art of medicine um, when they're that complex um, in terms of their RLS, right? So a lot of times patients may say, well, I already tried gabapentin in the past. It didn't work. And, you know, if you just stop there, then you're going to miss some key elements. And Mm. and one of those key elements is many times they didn't get enough get up to a higher dose. Like they were just on a hundred, you know, or okay. they, yeah, they didn't, they were taking it as needed kind of thing.
2: Right. And so it's, there's so many combinations of these medications. And so a lot of people, they say, well, I failed this, i failed that, but okay. If you failed gabapentin while you were already highly augmented on a dopamine agonist, it doesn't mean that once you're off the dopamine agonist, that the gabapentin won't help you.
0: Oh, that's a really good point. So you mean, it was sort of, they were on two medications, or was that part of a cross taper, you know? like just,
2: just, you know, I've seen patients, many patients who've seen other doctors first, sure. right? And so they just kept adding on and adding on rather than cutting back.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah.
2: And so once someone's highly augmented, adding more other medicines, they aren't going to work. Like it becomes, augmentation becomes its own thing. So you don't really have the restless leg. What you have is the augmentation. So you have to kind sort of take that away sometimes and then see where, they, where where they are with the restless leg and what works for the restless leg
0: so how do you you know because i'm i'm imagining that your practice is probably you know obviously different right because you're the second or third opinion and so does that change how you approach it then because you're sort of you're you have this heightened awareness of oh i think this is probably augmentation probably
2: in those cases we it's a variety i mean we're like Hopkins in your backyard here too, you know, so we have both the local patients, everyone, you know, who have very straightforward things and the more complicated patients. Oh,
1: I see.
0: Okay.
2: So it's a mix, really. So how do
0: you ask about augmentation?
1: It's all in the history, right? So like, how long have they been on their dopamine agonist? Uh, Where are the symptoms? A lot of times with augmentation, the symptoms have progressed to other body parts. And believe me, we've seen it you know, in many other body parts, you know, in more advanced cases. Um, What time are the symptoms starting? A lot of times you'll find that the symptoms are way earlier, like even in the morning hours. Um, Intensity is obviously increased as well, but you got to tease it apart because sometimes people present and they look like they have augmentation, but in reality they're taking some kind of other medication that may be exacerbating or perhaps their iron hasn't been rechecked in a while and that's an issue. Um, so it's all, you know, it always goes back to the history and really getting that clear picture. But for augmentation, as everyone knows, you know, it's really progression of the symptoms to other body parts earlier in the day, more intense. And, you know, you often find the history of that the patient recently increased or had been increasing the medication either by the clinician telling them to, or or sometimes a patient doing it on their own.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite thing is, is, is when I find Benadryl. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. like my that's my favorite thing to find to be like oh hey did your symptoms get worse yeah. when you started taking this like you know over the counter thing um,
1: yeah especially right now right people are getting colds and you know people are like oh it's over the counter it's not a big deal right. so antihistamines they're hidden in everything right and that's a big exacerbator for RLS.
0: Let's take a short break and when we come back we'll talk more about the updated Mayo Clinic proceedings treatment guidelines for restless leg syndrome. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join colleagues and subject matter experts February 23rd through 24th for Sleep Medicine Trends
1: 2024. Explore emerging technologies and innovations in sleep medicine that will enhance patient quality of care. Learn more at aasm.org
0: forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Rachel Salas and Dr. Sarah Benjamin about RLS and the updated treatment guidelines. So when you see a patient, do you start, like like the ones where Hopkins is in your backyard, do you start with labs or do you start with a trial of medications? Like how, what's your approach?
1: I'll, I'll start. I, I mean, I, I guess the first my first approach is to really figure out, is this a patient who has augmentation or they, do they just have RLS, is just not taking the medications? in the best way? Like, how can I tweak it? And and for me, timing is everything. Um, So I'll I'll look at that. But if it's a patient that has never been diagnosed, which I'll say is pretty rare in our clinic, Mm. um, you know, then I obviously make the diagnosis. I do labs, including iron. I might do some other laboratory studies, but most of the time that kind of preliminary work has been done by the primary care. Um, But definitely iron. And even if that was done, a lot of times I'll repeat it because it's been some, you know, over few months. Um, And then, you know, and then I'll start them usually on, you know, whether it's gabapentin or pregabalin or, you know, extended release. It just depends on what, again, the profile is of the patient. And then we'll go from then I'll have them come back in a couple months. And then we kind of go from there. But I often tell the patients to check in with me via my chart and I can make adjustments on medication dosing um, and give, you know, kind of guidance until, you know, in the meantime, before I see them again and follow up.
2: Yeah, I try to figure out, you know, ask them, is this something that happens every night or how many nights a week, how many nights a month, is this a problem? And so not everyone needs to be on medication for restless leg. If it's a more occasional thing and we can find um, non-medical treatments, if it's only happening, you know, once in a while... They don't always have, sometimes people to kind of report it's a phenomenon, but it's not something that they actually are seeking medical treatment for. Mm-hmm. They just want to know more about it, right, and know how to manage it. And some people will say, well, if I know it's an iron problem, you know, I, I would want to go on iron, but I don't necessarily want to go on a prescription medication.
0: Yeah, you know, that's funny that you say that because in, in you know, my neck of the woods, a lot of people are really adverse to being on medications, so if we can sort of look at, well, is this an iron issue? You know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. We see that too. Um, so I heard you say iron. Do you do just ferritin or do you do like the whole TIBC and iron saturation? And
2: Yeah, we definitely do the panel as well yeah. as the ferritin because, you know, as you know, ferritin can be an acute phase reactant and can be falsely elevated. I also really counsel patients that they shouldn't be doing this blood. Well, this blood work should be done fasting. Mm-hmm. off of supplements for two days before you do the blood work. And because it's an acute phase reactant, if you're feeling sick, if you have a little sore throat or cold, hold off. Do this um, you know, when you're feeling well.
0: That's a good point. So do you have a ferritin target?
2: I mean, my target is usually um, 75 nanograms per milliliter. Mm. The thing about that target is, yeah, there's probably some people who have a problem with transport of iron and it really do need a higher because we're measuring the peripheral blood, right? We're not really measuring what's going on in the central nervous system. So there are some people that probably need higher than that for it to get to the central nervous system, but then they would need IV iron.
1: Mm. Um,
2: but so as far as replacing iron orally, I, if, I, if I feel like I, I don't try to have a target higher than the 75
0: with oral iron. And how do you navigate the like IV iron?
1: I trained under Chris Early and Richard Allen, who, you know, in that center, we would we would actually order our own iron um, infusions on the patients, kind of like go through that. Um, when we transitioned over to the new our, our center, the Johns Hopkins Center for Sleep and Wellness, um, we made a a, a center decision to send those patients out so like we really work with our colleagues the hematologists that are very comfortable with RLS and there are some Mm. out there that are and even for newer hematologists that may not be that comfortable many times it's it's just having a conversation with them and we usually share um, protocols that we can use I mean there's all these caveats that come into play when it comes to Iron. So um, our center just made the decision that it's just best done to the professionals, right? The hematologists. <laughs> so we refer and then, you know, we get patients from all over the country. So a lot of times, you know, it, even if we could do, if even if we were doing the IV iron infusions through our center, which we're not, um, you know, it, it really entails us connecting with the, the, the clinicians in their hometown where they, you know, obviously are going to get more convenient uh, care with the IV iron infusions
0: so you know what I've always found uh, kind of weird is that if you order the iron like the ferritin for restless leg syndrome it's not covered and you have to have a different diagnosis
1: yeah, yeah
2: I, I use disorder of iron metabolism as Ooh. my diagnosis because it really is a disorder of iron
0: metabolism oh that's a good idea okay so what other labs do you draw
1: I'll I'll say that, you know, it depends, right? It's like if the patient's brand new, doesn't have a primary care, you know, definitely I'll consider, you know, some other like things looking for potentially like neuropathy, right? Like I use a thyroid, uh, you you know, uh, maybe a, a... a panel, you know, looking for if there's diabetes, things like the hemoglobin A1c. But it's very rare. Like I said, you know, patients that are really coming to our clinic usually have seen um, not only their primary care, who's done some initial like baseline blood work, but many times the patients we're seeing have seen even other sleep specialists and they're coming for, you know, second, third, fourth opinions.
0: So, I feel like our practices are diametrically opposed <laughs> because, <laughs> So I will usually see them de novo, right? And then, um, you know, I kind of have my list of labs to collect. And so, so you know, you talked about thyroid and hemoglobin A one c, um, ferritin and iron studies. Do you do b twelve folate LFTs too?
1: Yeah, I may do that, Um, especially if the patient also has daytime fatigue, right? If they're like Mm. kind of, you know, I I do think it's worth like if you're looking for that.
0: So, Sarah, I heard you say earlier that, you know, sometimes people with intermittent RLS, it's not particularly bothersome that you would do a non-pharmacological intervention. So what is that? Is that stretching? Is that moving? Or is it one of these gadgets?
2: Well, usually I talk to people about you know what seems to make their restless leg feel better or feel worse, and then kind of come up on it's an individualized plan. Um, one thing that I found with patients with restless leg is there's usually a sweet spot with exercise, like a moderate amount of physical activity that is helpful. And if it's a day they overdo it or a day that they aren't able to get their moderate activity, it'll be worse. So we mm-hmm. kind of sometimes talk about building that in. Um, you know, we've use a lot of overlap with some of the um, the sports massaging kind of things that have oh, been helpful for okay. patients. Like there's the foam roller. And so if you can't like really, you know, always walk around there's things you can do like the massage gun, things that are just easy to use in your bedroom. And then just um, another thing that as we talk about is just like some physical movements before going to bed, just kind of like we have a handout that's about yoga poses for sleep. And that can be really helpful for people too. So instead of just pacing and thinking about restless leg, they have kind of a mindful routine of movement, which can help their legs settle down and their mind settle down. And another, another point I wanna make about restless leg is that the same level of inactivity, depending on what the brain is doing, can have different levels of symptoms. So it's very interesting how you can have a person who can say, I could play cards seated at eight o'clock at night with no problem, but I can't sit and read a book at eight o'clock at night. Right? So they're sitting huh. the same way. So there's something different about what the brain is doing. And you sometimes you can use that and help them like find things to do to, um, to change that connection a little bit, to help them quiet their legs through keeping their mind busy in a different way.
0: So, like distraction. Mm-hmm.
2: For some people, if it's not very, very severe, a lot of people are able to,
0: to use those type of uh, strategies. So, I love the idea of a foam roller and the massage gun. I I had never considered the massage gun before. That's a great. That's a great thing to sort of help patients take care of it themselves.
1: Yeah, and, inter, and so I I definitely make that recommendation as well. Um, one of the newer things that I've kind of had some, you know, I always tell patients like Goldilocks, right? You got to find out what works for you and people try all sorts of things. Um, Some of the newer things that are out there, obviously, you know, is is, um, getting formal massages, um, There's cryotherapy now, whole body cryotherapy. There's like compression therapy that you can go to like a wellness center and get like 30 minutes or an hour of compression therapy on your legs or your arms. So there's a lot of things out there. And I want to encourage people to try different things, but also but be mindful about safe things, right? Sometimes patients read things on the Internet and they may um, not only not be helpful, but actually could be potentially harmful.
0: So compression therapy, are those like the squeezy
1: boots? Yeah, the, um they're they're like these large um like zip on kind of boots that inflate and you can uh, dial up and most of the wellness centers um, will have those available and you can do like 30 minutes up to an hour and you can pick how how intense you want it and you know I've I've tried I don't have restless leg syndrome but I like to try like things that are out there and you know it's pretty non-invasive and if anything I mean you're like getting a focal kind of massage (laughs) right so you know things to try
0: and cryotherapy—that's cool.
1: Yeah, there's no studies on that, so I want to point that out. Like, I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying cryotherapy is in our practice parameters, but you know, um, you know, there, 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 may be some opportunity there. You know, like definitely some, um, maybe could help in improvement with you know, kind of recovery, uh, especially for athletes and things like that. But you know, I think, I think uh, as long as you don't have major um, contraindications to trying some of these things and they're kind of low yield, it might be worth trying.
0: What about the foot brace? Have you tried that?
1: What, the foot brace? That
0: resti- that restific?
1: Oh, no. I I mean, I haven't tried it. I mean, patients have asked me about it. I mm-hmm. haven't had any patients that came back with some, um, whether they got it or not and whether it was beneficial. I don't know. Sarah, do you have any No, experience? no, I don't. I've certainly gotten asked about it for sure.
0: You have. That's interesting. We had, uh, we had a, like, two or three samples and i had one one person that was like no nah, this doesn't do anything and i had one that was just like this is amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was just the best thing ever what about the uh that relaxes pad that used to be around did you ever use that
1: i had some patients that had used it and again it's a, it's always a mixed bag right mm. that's why i always go back to find the goldilocks you know like just try different things out which are going to work for you just be mindful of what's Going to be safe or not, and so definitely talk to your um, doctor about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's a new one, right? That band around your leg.
1: Yeah, there, that one I don't know too much about yet. And I know there's a lot of stimulators out there as well. So yeah, there's the good news is there's a lot of research happening, and hopefully in the you know upcoming years there's going to be like more kind of FDA approved options. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of devices out there that may be worth you know again like Dr. Benjamin was saying, kind of distracting the patient, kind of implementing things into your bedtime routine, particularly if you're, if you're trying to minimize the amount of medications you're using.
0: So when do we start to consider narcotics?
1: Ooh, that's the, that's the question, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of reminders when it comes to opioids, right? So it's not first line. It is in our practice parameters but you have to try the other kind of gold standard treatment options first, which obviously include the alpha-2 delta calcium channel ligands, the dopamine agonist. And then for the occasional patient, you don't have these often, but every and now and then you'll have that occasional patient that says, you know, I just get RLS like three times a week. If you just like, if I just had something to get me to, you know, yeah. then that might be a good choice. But benzodiazepines honestly aren't, are not traditionally used like often. Mm-hmm. But if they have augmentation and we're trying to bring them off, and maybe they can't use alpha 2 delta calcium channel ligands, or you know, or they've already used them, we've maximized them or not, then then opioids can be a great option. But it's not e- easy. Not 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 only are we in a global pandemic when it comes to the opioids, um, but there's a stigma, right? And often mm-hmm. our patients, um, you know, have concerns, and their families have concerns. So. It's not an easy decision. Decision. It's not first line, but when done right at low doses and and really connecting with your patient and explaining to them, I, I always say, you know, Chris Early always said this. He said that RLS is a different beast compared to chronic pain, and that still really resonates with me. We just don't see the substance misuse that patients with chronic pain may have when it comes to the opioids. And in fact, there's a paper that came out. Um, recently, looking at the long-term safety and, and the stability and, and efficacy of opioids with RLS. Now, there was, you know, there, the study's not perfect, mm. um, but it does highlight that, um, you know, it's they're pretty safe when done right and at low doses.
0: So, which which ones are you talking about? Codeine, morphine, methadone?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think people are going to get tired of me saying this. You know, a little bit of the Goldilocks, <laughs> relax, but you know, um I you know, honestly, from my anecdotal like my experience, um you know, I tried, you know, oxycodone, hydrocodone maybe like kind of my initial because you can't really go straight to some of the other ones, mm-hmm. but honestly, I have the best impact when we get to it is low dose methadone. Mm-hmm. It works really well. The side effect again, low doses often, you know, maybe with the alpha 2 delta uh, ligand uh, medications as well, but uh, certainly if you can get the patient over to just one, even if it's the opioid, and I have, I have several patients on low dose doing r- extremely well on a low dose of, of uh, methadone.
0: Sarah, is that your experience too? Yeah,
2: yeah, so most of my patients who are on methadone who maybe had started on oxycodone um, and then we look at the, you know, the morphine equivalent dose, you know, and when the oxycodone dose starts getting up to the morphine equivalent of like five milligrams of methadone, then to transition them mm. that way. Um, and then I'd also add it just as far as deciding who's going to go on opioids, I like to have some assessment of their breathing at night, too, before doing that. And if they do mm-hmm. have sleep apnea, make sure it's adequately treated. Yeah, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks uh, Sarah, for bringing that up. I mean, that is a must, right? You, and that's often, you know, something that we struggle with because a patient will come to our center specifically to discuss treatment um, options for their less, but they've not been adequately um, evaluated for something like even, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, which 80% of people out there have and aren't adequately, or they're not diagnosed and therefore not treated. And to add an opioid or any Hypnotic or pain pill, anything like that, onto a patient with you know undiagnosed, untreated apnea. That's that's a big issue. So that is, that is a conversation that I always have with my patients, especially um, if opioids are even in the discussion up front, because they have augmented or they're more complex.
0: So you're kind of referring to the 80% that we estimate is undiagnosed, right? Correct. Yeah. That's exactly yeah.
1: right. That includes the patients with RLS, right? I mean, They're many, not immune- I, no, <laughs> many of these
2: tertiary referral restless leg patients turned out to have severe rest, severe um, sleep apnea. And then sometimes I have some patients at their local sleep doctor manage their sleep apnea, but I still want to kind of peek in on it, right? Make right. sure that it's, you know, even though they have the local DME, so I want to make sure that that apnea is met when I'm making my recommendations for their restless leg treatment.
1: Well, I was just going to make the note because I think um, this is important in discussing with your patient who has RLS is saying that we got to make sure that if you have apnea, that it's adequately treated. And here's why, because if it's not, and you have apnea, you could wake up in the middle of the night or early in the night, whatever, you can wake up and guess what will happen? Your RLS kicks in. So so sleep apnea untreated can, can be an exacerbator of RLS and perpetuate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if you have somebody on um, like a dopamine agonist and you're like, okay, this is augmentation and you want to start an alpha-2 delta calcium channel ligand, how do you like do you cross taper? Do you like, how do you, how do you figure that out?
1: Well, I think it depends. You know, I think every probably sleep specialist may have a different kind of approach for me. Um, I'll look at which dopamine agonists they're on. If they're on the longer, the longer acting, um, you know, I may move the timing. I find that a lot of patients that are on the dopamine agonist are taking it at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. So if you if your RLS kicks in and then you take your your dopamine agonist, that's a problem, right? right? So I may start first by just moving things around, having the conversation about we you have risk factors for apnea. Let's get this and going in the meantime, and kind of moving the medications while I'm waiting to reassess or assess for apnea, looking at their iron levels, looking at other things that I want to look at and so when they come to follow up we discuss the sleep study decide whether or not apnea is on the table whether we need to treat it and by that time they've already had they're going to be able to give me some feedback on just the movement of time but they already know the goal is to get them off the dopamine agonist if they're not on the the alpha 2 delta ligand um medication, I I'd, I'd probably start implementing at that next visit there and again, start working up. And then again, just reiterating that the goal is going to be able to be to get them off the dopamine agonist. And so I, I try to be pretty frank and give them worst case scenario because we've all seen withdrawal from the mm-hmm. dopamine agonist. And I think that's important to talk to your patients about.
0: So, do you split the dose too? Like, do you do one? Yep. yep. Okay.
1: Yeah, I often do that. It's like t- move it, move it closer. Like, maybe take it at five p.m. Depending, I have to ask when their symptoms are starting. I'll definitely divide it, and then you know when I start weaning them off, I probably drop like the the earlier dose, go to the evening dose, maybe even slow it down and every other night. Like, it just depends on the patient. It's it's all about precision medicine and personalization. Um, you know, there's no right or wrong in my in my book, from my experience, and it's just really meeting the patient where they are and what their concerns are and, you know, um, how bad their withdrawal symptoms are. Um, but I try to have like a step-by-step play so that they feel that we're always doing something.
2: Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I think… If possible, to cross titrate, it might be a more gentle approach. But I have patients who've tried to cross titrate and they're not successful. Mm. And in those patients, they really do sometimes need to just lower the dopamine agonist, have a washout period, and then all of a sudden... The alpha two to, you know the other medicine works now that never worked when they were still on it and so there's some like that but you really do have to give them a clear picture of what this withdrawal period is which can be very very severe in, in many patients and it have to be at the right place and time to do that yeah which may be taking off work not driving I mean this is you know I, I mean I have patients you know adults who work who it's so bad that i'm like in conversation with their you know i'm talking about like you know a working 40 year old and i'm like have to talk to their parents because you know they really get themselves in such a bad place with this that it just becomes like you know they they can't even manage and and then you also have to realize that coming off of the dopamine agonist sometimes people have really bad if they're prone especially to depression and things, it can come out a lot and it can be in a very bad place. Mm. And so not everyone is really a candidate to totally come off. And in some of those patients, they do better switching over to like the reticotine patch, like having just, which has a little bit less augmentation. Mm. You know, I have both, you know, people who are just prone to depression, people who are very old. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm afraid that they're going to have a cardiovascular event coming oh, off of it. Yeah. I, had, I had a patient come to me once, Who was in her 90s? Who was in a nursing home, and she had a little basket on her walker, right? And she pretty much going around all day taking carbidopa levodopa. Oh my (laughs) gosh! Throughout her day, and you know it was, you know, she came with her daughter, and we talked about all this, and you know, even she came in the office, you know, her systolic blood pressure was already like 180, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh! I'm like, you know, if I try taking her off of this, what's going to happen? I'm afraid she'd have a stroke if I took this away from her. Oh no! So you you have to customize the plant, but I. I have had patients i mean i can think of at least one patient as, as you know who was 80 years old who had been on dopamine agonists for years and she successfully and she couldn't cross titrate and she had to do the washout and she did it and she was wow. just very proud of herself right for getting through it was rough but she got through it but it's a lot of hand holding you have to be in a position where the patient can touch base with you every few days and tell you how they're doing it if they're doing this washout because it can be very very severe
0: you know, that's such a good point about depression, you know, in uh, where I am in Fargo, we have, you know, of course, long winters and it's dark and we tend not to wean antidepressants in the winter. You know, like if we're talking about MSLT or something like that, we're mm-hmm. like, you know, eh, we don't really want to do it in the winter. And everybody's like, yes, I don't want to do it in the winter. <laughs> like, it's just such an accepted fact where, wow. where we are. So I have to ask you guys, what about the bar of soap in bed? Like, how does that work?
1: I have no idea how that works. Um, it's It's been around forever. Um, I don't know if it just is something there so the patient maybe like moves their legs a little bit you know something comf, kind of comfort, something to I don't know.
0: Sarah, any wisdom?
2: Yeah, I don't know the science behind it, but if it helps somebody, the great.
0: Yeah, it, it was something I just find it so curious, right? I, I trained in Kentucky and then in Georgia and then, you know, North Dakota, Minnesota, like all of the stuff. And it's always there. Somebody always does it. <laughs> and I have no idea how it works. And I'm like, "What's well, probably not going to hurt anything. Like, yeah. have at it. <laughs> so any final thoughts?
1: There's more awareness about restless leg syndrome by our, you know, our colleagues that um, maybe not necessarily our sleep specialists. Um, so I think there's a lot more awareness. I think people are really in tune about like ruling out like mimics. There's a lot of things that look like RLS, but aren't. So it's all in the history. I mean, again, restless leg syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. They have to patients have to meet all of those diagnostic criteria to be, um, diagnosed. And like Dr. Benjamin mentioned earlier is like, if a, if a patient tells you, yeah, I just have this RLS symptoms, they meet the criteria and it's just symptoms twice a, a week then we're, we're, we're not going to advocate to treat those patients, right? Because like the symptoms aren't, you know, and, and most of them will tell you, I'm not really interested in medication, even though those two times a week is a problem. And then having conversations, just connecting with your patients, retrying medications in the past, thinking about the, the ideal timing for medications. Um, again, I, I do all my alpha to uh, the delta ligand medications all at night versus like two or three times a day or in the morning, um, nighttime's better, especially, you know, with the side effect of sleepiness and dizziness. Um, so it, it just really comes down to connecting with your patient and and really kind of seeing what their goals are, what time their medication, I mean, what time are they taking their medication, what time are their symptoms happening? And, you know, there can be a lot of precision that can be done even just by, getting that information first before even getting into like starting them on a different medication or weaning them off or whatnot.
0: I love that approach. Sarah, final thoughts? So
2: it's important to take a very careful history for your patients to see what symptoms they have to make sure it really is restless leg and not a mimicker and really see how the restless leg is impacting their life and see what medications they've tried and failed and what combinations and then what you can do to customize care for each patient.
0: You said you have to dispel patients against this. So how do you explain that they have PLMD and not, or PLMs and not restless leg syndrome?
2: Um, I explained to the patients that restless leg syndrome is actually a clinical diagnosis. It's based mm-hmm. on how they feel and what they're reporting to me. It's not something you see on a sleep study. Um, if somebody is moving their legs in their sleep those are called periodic limb movements in sleep and that's very common especially as people get older or if they're on antidepressant medications um, we see that a lot and that's not necessarily something that you need to track down or treat
1: Yeah, and i would add to that when we see periodic limb movements on a sleep study like if you order a sleep study and you, and it comes back and you're seeing those and you look at their medication list, like Dr. Benjamin mentioned, they're not a you know antidepressant or another medication that could be you know exacerbating that. Then you definitely would, I would say, that that would be a cue to question your patient about symptoms of RLS, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, right? It's definitely worth having that discussion with all your sleep patients. Just you know, you can just make some kind of blanket statement, like, do you? Does any discomfort in your legs, make it hard to sleep, you know, and and make sure you open up that conversation.
1: Sorry, I was going to mention one thing, just, just because I do see this a lot, like you'll have a patient that comes and says, oh, yeah, I have that restless leg syndrome. Mm -hmm. So my question always to that is, oh, really, you know, like, oh, who diagnosed you with that? And they often will say, Oh, I, I haven't. It's just what I have. Right. Mm-hmm. So you want to clear that up. And it's not just with restless legs. Sometimes patients may like just kind of self-diagnose. So you want to just kind of be inquisitive a, a little bit about that. Like, oh, when were you diagnosed? Who diagnosed your primary care? Or did you see a specialist? RLS seems to be one of those that that I don't know, for for whatever reason, um, patients may say, oh, yeah, 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 I have restless leg syndrome. So you don't want to put that in the chart unless they really do have that diagnosis.
0: Yeah, because they may mean that they're like jumping their legs during the day or they're, yeah.
1: Correct, yeah. It could be just that they have like a habit, right? They're mm-hmm. restless and they're just tapping their foot.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point that we really want to clarify that we're, you know, talking about the same thing. Right. Well, thank you both for joining us today and to help us better understand the new guidelines regarding treatment for restless leg syndrome.
1: Well, thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Sima Khosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.